tribe, and it's been focused on the tribe of Judah, uh, but really what it's about and what it's focused on is the symbol and the meaning of what the tribe of Judah carries for us today in a modern sense, Judah being one of the sons of Jacob, uh, the tribe of Israel. Uh, it's amazing study and place, uh, and our lives as worship is the idea or is the title of what we'll be really jumping into today. So our lives as worship. Uh, I'm excited about it. And I want to remind you that as we study these places, so much of these first couple of teachings and conversations uh, are in the subject and theme of worship. They won't all be, but these right now are. And as, as a quick refresher and reminder, worship for us is is not just exclusively that which just happened, and, and we did go a little bit longer today for worship, but that is not the, the true expression of worship and community, you might say. That's a beautiful part of worship. Uh, it's a beautiful thing that we all do together, but worship is way more than just a song. It's way more than just a, a series of instruments and musics and chords played together in progression, uh, but true worship is a life that is reflective of the heart of God. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to take a look at uh, Judah, David, and Jesus. Judah, David, Jesus. Uh, and David and uh, Jesus coming from the line of Judah. And uh, we're going to take a look at those today. And we're going to see what those three lives a little bit look like. And how they are truly symbols of a lifestyle of worship. And it all begins with Judah uh, in that place, in that context. Because Judah means praise and uh, Judah, uh, biblically, was the firstborn by assignment. That's going to be important in a little bit. He wasn't the firstborn as far as actual birth, uh, but he was the firstborn by assignment. We'll read that in Genesis 49. But as we talk about and we see all these things, I believe a really important foundation to all of this is that our Christianity is based on the Word of God, and it's not based on ideology or sensationalism which means that it's not the ideas I have that lead and guide my faith, and it's not the feelings I have at any particular moment that lead and guide my faith, but that truly a life of worship is one that is rooted on eternal influence and eternal concepts. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? You guys with me? Sweet. Awesome. 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 So as we study the Word today and we take a look at these things, it's going to be a real invitation for us to establish eternal partnership with God and eternal uh, things, foundational things in our life. Because there's the life that builds its house on sand. And there's the life that builds its house on the rock of Jesus. And uh, when we build our, our life on the enduring word of God, it can stand always. So we're going to jump into the word today and we're going to identify these places of worship. And as a reminder to the context of all this, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. I love this scripture because it points immediately to this concept and this idea that worship isn't a song. It's not a time in the service but that worship, when you truly see it biblically, is a life. A life that is continually and perpetually on the altar of God. And uh, 
The interesting thing I like about the living sacrifice language, as it states there, is that living sacrifice has this, you're always on fire. Have you ever thought of that? That when you talk about a living sacrifice, if you liken it back to sacrifices, which were, you know, animals that they put on the altar and light on fire, when you're a living sacrifice, you're always on fire. Isn't that amazing? Have you guys ever played uh, NBA uh, Jam? Remember that one? Do you guys remember that one? Uh, it, was, uh, it was Nintendo, no, Super Nintendo. And it was NBA Jam, and I had the deluxe edition, I think it was called. And if you got three baskets in a row without the other team scoring a basket, you remember this, Miles? If you got three baskets in a row without the other team scoring a basket, he, they would say, he's on fire, fire. And, then, and then you were on fire. And anytime that guy got the ball, he was on fire and he couldn't miss. And uh, it was always fun to, to get on fire. Uh, and it was always fun to just be able to rain threes from anywhere, Steph Curry style. But when you see this, this, this scripture right here in the Bible, it says, it says our spiritual worship is one of being a living sacrifice. And when you think about that, it's interesting because it doesn't say it's one of a really nice chord progression. Or it's one that listens to like Hillsong United in the morning and then Bethel music at night. You know, but what it says is it's a living sacrifice, which means true worship is about a life lived in a certain way. And when we study Judah and when we study David and when we study Jesus, it's not just for us to go, yeah, those are cool ideas but they're meant to be lives that are truly poster childs of what it looks like to live our life as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless for the Lord. But we must have this visual in our mind that, that we're always on fire. We're always putting ourselves on the altar of God and saying, I, I give you my life. I give you my life. And sometimes we talk about the altar and we think about that space at the front of the church. You know, have you ever been, have you ever responded to like an altar call to like give your life to Jesus or for, to get free from fear or something like that? How many of you guys have ever responded to an altar call, right? Like, so we call this space the altar and that's, that's cool. It's beautiful symbolism. I know why we do it. It's meant to be kind of a physical space that, that really represents a spiritual encounter. But really what it's illustrating is not at all about this physical space. It's trying to illustrate a relational dynamic between us and God. Which means that we bring our life and we lay it on the altar. Not this physical space, but in a space between us and God that is indicative of a life laid down. And a life on fire. A life that is being consumed by God. The Holy Spirit is all-consuming fire. So when we see these things, we... We should ask the question, and I know I asked the question, why did Judah get the honor of having Jesus come from its line? Did you ever think about that? Of all the tribes, why did Judah get that honor? So I asked the question, and I was studying it, and I was looking it up, and in, in Genesis 49, 8 through 10, Jacob sat down, and in this, in this chapter here, you should read the whole thing. It's really interesting. He literally sits down and talks about each one of his sons, and also, this is the moment when he blesses Judah and he gets, the birth, he gets the inheritance or he gets the firstborn honor by assignment. And so in Genesis 49, 8 through 10, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Before this, you saw Jacob disqualify a couple of his sons for certain reasons. And two of the reasons that those sons got disqualified from the firstborn blessing was one was sexual impurity and the other was anger that was leading towards violence and unjust violence. So you see this lifestyle means something. This lifestyle that we live, it's actually important. Our worship was never meant to just be a set of words that are describing God. But our worship was meant to be language that was reflective of our life being lived. And the difference would be this, is that we don't worship God to just be like a fan of God. You know, clapping and cheering on God. But when we're talking about God and when we're drawing near to God in worship, it's literally with the idea that as we worship Him, we become like Him. The difference between a person who lives a lifestyle of worship between somebody who just sings or talks about God in a worshipful way is that one becomes like him, the other just talks about what he's like. The Christian journey was never meant to be a commentary alone on who God was and is. The Christian journey was always meant to be a revelation of who God is tied to and creating a transformation of who I am into his image. So when you and I worship God and we don't have a process or a journey of becoming like him, it's not a lifestyle of worship, it's just fandom. Isn't God good? He's great. But if you and I aren't becoming good like he is good, that's not a lifestyle of worship. That's not a living sacrifice. That's just a recognition of God. But there's a big difference. There's a good solid bridge to cross between just recognizing how good God is and being persuaded to move towards a God who is good in a life of worship. See, there's something really amazing about a life of worship, right? A life of worship really does need a significant revelation of how good God is. You know, because it takes a lot of motivation to lay yourself on an altar that has fire. It takes a lot of motivation. Did you know, like, our finger, we could, did you know you could just bite it off? Did you know that? Especially at the joint part, you have the, the strength in your jaw to, to uh, bite it off. Do you know why you don't? It's because your brain stops you. When you see an altar on fire and you're like, wait, I get to jump on that? Your logical brain's going to be like, nah, fam, I'm good. Right? Your, your logical brain's going to be like, no, the, the, I gotta, uh, if you study psychology, it's the, it's the preservation of self. It's the preservation of the ego, the mind, and the way it's constructed. You're, you're not inclined to surrender the form of who you are. In your humanity, you're inclined to preserve it and to protect it. 
it's, it's a part of our psychological and mental drive is that we become a certain pattern a certain way and then we call that who we are. We claim that to be our identity. And so we make the shape of who we are right now the thing that governs and guides us rather than the shape of who he is. Okay, we're going to have to jump into the scripture on this because that's gonna, you're not going to believe me until we read it in scripture. I know it sounds weird. Trust me, we'll get there. Romans 8, 29, but let's start in 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you have heard that scripture? How many of you have quoted it when your life is a hot mess? Come on, all things work together for good. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's like your, it's like your hype tape in the morning, you know? And you walk out with more confidence, and, and it's really, really nice, and you really, really like it, and it's probably on your highlight reel of scriptures that make you feel good about yourself. But more than often, more times than not, the scriptures that we feel really comforted by, like self-affirming, if you read the scripture before it, the verse before it, or the verse after it, you'll be like, hey, in context, that's actually kind of the worst. And here's what you got to follow it up with and understand in the context of what it means. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is this outlining? It's outlining that to be conformed, to be shaped and molded into the image of the Son is our true faithful journey as a Christian. And so when it says God works out all things together for those who love Him, there's the implication of transformation. There's the invitation of changing into His image. And in fact, I'd even go further and say that actually... What it's saying about things working together for your good and my good is about the fact that you will get to look like him. Many times we associate this with some kind of conditions and terms and situational changes. Like it's going to work out. It's going to work out. You know, you know why it's going to work out? Because no matter what the situation or storm, he can shape you into his image if you will seek him. That's the blessing of a faith and a journey with God is that we have this opportunity to be like him. And that's a life of worship. That's a life that is truly surrendered to God, that is truly in the image of God and that is truly being transformed into his image and into his likeness. So I don't worship him and talk about him simply so that I can talk about him. This isn't lip service, man. Jesus said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. There is a real challenge to our Christianity when we know how to talk about God, but we don't know how to become like his son. And the crux of the situation is it's easy to recognize in a community of believers that God is good. But it takes great faith to become good like God. That bridge to cross, that conforming into the image of sun, it requires many, many, many die-to-self moments. Many of them. In fact, it's the fullness of our Christian journey. Oftentimes I hear people say, yo, uh, when does this thing kind of like get easier? You ever said that? I say that. I said it yesterday. <laughs> to myself, when does this get easier? <laughs> 
Because the reality is, is when the Bible says, be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that is hard. And that will always be a dying to self process. Because here's the formation of your mind, and then when you choose to be conformed to the image of the Son, you must get a new mind. But how often do our thoughts, our ideas, actually form and shape our behavior? This is what I think. This is what I feel. This is what I desire. God wants me to desire, have the desires of my heart. So there we go. One plus one equals I get my way. And all of a sudden, I think when we really look at the lives of Judah and David and Jesus, we'll see that a lifestyle of worship first and foremost was the forfeiture of our own will and our own way. The great display of worship is bringing a life and a will and laying it on the altar in worship. This is the great, great, beautiful symbolism of our worship. So when the music's playing, it's another opportunity to bring our lives to the altar. And the altar can be in your seat, it can be in the back row, it can be in your car, it can be on the street parking lot right over there. The altar is wherever you choose to lay your life down. That's where the altar is at. So you see it, right? And I always ask, it's just interesting, you see with David in Acts 13, 22, it says, and he removed, and when he had removed him, referring to Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Isn't that amazing? Like David ends up getting these words that would determine that Jesus would come from his line. You could see those words in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 13. David got these promises from God that, that states the throne of his kingdom forever because Jesus would come from his line. So you see that David ends up getting really blessed as a man of God in all this. And it happens because he had a heart after God. Which a lot of us, when we think of the heart, we think of like sentiment. We think of emotions, right? We're like, it's really heartfelt. You know, there's tears in it. There's something in the heart. How many of you guys like heart makes you think of emotions, right? What's interesting about what it states about David having a heart after God's is that what follows it and what really quantifies it is that he was a man who would do God's will. All of his will. Isn't that amazing that, the, that a heart after God has a great fruit of obedience and alignment to the will of God. So when we say things like, not my life, but yours, not my will, but yours be done, God, or things like my utmost for his highest, and we do the study with Oswald Chambers and the whole nine yards, it becomes lip service if it isn't actually us taking a part of our life that is not like God and laying it on the altar every single day. And all of a sudden we see David in this place of being representative of a heart that's after God. And it says of the man that he would do God's will. David represents a great symbol of a man that beyond his will, beyond his life, wanted God's life and God's will. This is the first beautiful expression of worship. He's bringing our life to God and saying, it's all yours. It's all yours, God. And I wonder sometimes if the it's all yours becomes a little bit simplistic for us. You ever feel that way? Like you're like, yeah, God, it's all yours. 
cool, I give you all my life. All right, all right, cool, so, so now what? You ever think like this? You ever think like, okay, cool, God, you said that, now what? Now, now what do we do with that? That's cool and all, I give you my life. There you go, I give you my life. Now what else do I do? And this pursuit of God can become something that's really interestingly, amazingly complex, even though it's super simple. You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be established. All of a sudden, this idea of giving God your whole life, while it's a really simple idea, is almost too simple for our sensibility. We're like, it's got to be something else, right? I got I to gotta clock in somehow, right? I got to do something in my life for it to change. I can't just ask God to change it and do nothing. So what is our reasonable part in this transformation and journey? Have you ever asked this? Like God, you said salvation is not by works, neither is grace, but man, I feel like I got to work for this, so what do you want me to do? I get it. I was an athlete growing up. I think I've retired from being that. But ultimately, three ACL surgeries later, and you'll do that. You'll just retire. You're like, I don't want this anymore. But ultimately, the reality is, is as an athlete, as a, as a person that was... What do you do? You work hard to perform better. Honestly, we have the same thing as students, right? We, we study harder to get a better grade. In business, we do the same thing. Research, study, invest, just grind. I'm on that grind, you know what I mean? You're just always on it. All of a sudden, we have this template for our life and this recipe for our life that great success in God looks like us applying the same exact model to our relationship with God. And it's really no wonder we get our Christian service and our Christian works becoming just works-based righteousness. Because we're like, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to go to more classes about leadership. I'm going to go to more marriage classes. I'm going to go to more Bible studies and home groups, which I love all those. Go to our home groups. But, (laughs) But the reality is, is that you can't do enough of these acts and works for you to be transformed. You can't. There aren't enough Bible studies. There aren't enough worship service. There aren't enough books and sermons to fill the void of what only God can do in transformation. Because knowledge does not equip you to transformation. Knowledge in its best form instigates great worship of God. Meaning this. Wow! I see you, God, and now, because I see you, and I think it's amazing and great, I worship you. And all of a sudden, the knowledge of God, when it instigates gratefulness, and when it instigates worship, is a recipe for transformation. Because when you see God, and when you're like, whoa, yes, it becomes so easy to sing a song over and over again. It becomes so easy to worship God and say, yes, yes. I pray in the morning, I study and I meditate on your word day and night, not because it's a religious duty, but because it's a motivation of revelation. I've seen you, thus I want to talk about you. I want to see more of you. I want to be close to you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be like you. Because what son doesn't want to be like his father? It's the, it's the literal spiritual inheritance of sons and daughters that when they encounter father, they want to be like him. It's a real relational motivation. It takes place when we actually see 
God in our life. That's why the Bible says, fix your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on him. Fix them. You know what worship truly is, first and foremost? It's a conviction and a decision to lock your eyes on Jesus. It's not some kind of performing works. It's not some kind of volunteership. or vol- It's keep your eyes on him. Lock them. Choose to look at him even when you're drawn to look at something else. And what are the other things that take our gaze away? Oftentimes, fear is a great recipe for us to take our eyes off Jesus. Remember when Peter got off the boat and he's like walking on water? And what happens? He's like waves, wind, oh my goodness, sink, starts drowning. What is it? Started, he got on the water because what? He was going after Jesus. He starts drowning because he looks at his atmospheric situation, he takes his eyes off of Jesus. You see Lot's wife, sometimes the direction that God's called us in is the image of Jesus, sometimes regret, sometimes our history causes us to go, well, Jesus is good, but man, I have blown it a lot. Man, there's a lot in my past that I gotta figure out and I gotta fix. Sometimes it's the temptation, it's the draw of the, of the lust of our eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride. There's a lot of different reasons we dislocate our fixed eyes from Jesus and put it on something else. But the bottom line is a life of worship is a life that chooses to keep its eyes locked on Jesus. You see this in the lifestyle of Jesus, and he said in John 5, 19, So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The reality of our situation is that our spiritual success comes in a continued and a perpetual eyes locked on father in heaven. That's worship. So when you close your eyes, like, do you know why? It's so you can focus on the image of God in your life as you're worshiping. It's a pragmatic way. It's just practical. Like, I close them, not because God's more real when I close them. (laughs) It's just because there's things that distract you, right? Do things distract you in worship sometimes? Me, Yeah, for sure. Me too, right? Somebody's got a booger in their nose or somebody's (laughs) hair's just a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> I put my hands through my hair, and every once in a while, I got this one spot right here that just kind of wants to stay up. You know, the right, right. So all of a sudden, you close your eyes, and what takes place is just, just an ability to, to, to lock your spiritual eyes on God. That's all it is. Sometimes we, we put our body in a certain physical posture because it just helps. This isn't worship. This isn't worship. This isn't worship. (laughs) These are just physical body movements that without a spiritual connection and a spiritual focus on God mean nothing. It's the same thing you do at a concert. It's the same thing. What's the difference? It's one that's got its heart locked, its spiritual eyes locked on Jesus. And it's beholding Him. It's in awe of Him. Acts 2 said they, they were in awe of God. 
And this awe of God is the, it's the, it's the precipitating act. It's the, it's the very instigation of our lives to look at being, I'm in awe of God. And this is actually, and if you study out that Acts 2 part, some translations say, and they were in fear of God. But what it's really saying is they were in awe of God. So this fear of God, even as we've tried to describe it in a really basic English language, it's really not talking about like, oh, God. It's talking about being so consumed by the image of his son that it propels and motivates you in every capacity of your life. And when you truly fear God, it trumps and it overwhelms your fear of other things. Because the second part of worship after locking your eyes on Jesus is maintaining the persuasion that focus on God is the sufficiency of your life. Because sometimes we can allow our minds to believe that we need to look at God and also everything else. So we look at God and we're like, yeah, that's really good. I worship you. I fixed my eyes on you. Okay, Jesus, thanks for that. That was really great. Now I get to go pay my bills, fix my family, fix my home, fix my car. All of a sudden, we believe that sometimes our daily lifestyle, which is why we need to learn how to have a lifestyle of worship, means that we, we have to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on our pragmatic problems or things that we need to find solutions for. So when we understand that to have a perspective and a locked eyes on Jesus means that we don't actually accomplish anything in life and we don't actually do anything is to have a misunderstanding of what it means to lock your eyes on Jesus. See, some of us believe that it's to look at Jesus or to look at our life, and it's one of the two. But when you're really understanding what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, it means that you look at Jesus and you look through the prism and through the frame of Jesus as you look at your whole life. So all of a sudden, it's the bifocals of your life. It's the, it's the rose-colored lenses of your life. So you, you look to Jesus, and it's all of a sudden you look through Jesus, and you look through his eyes, and you see it the way he sees it. It's a perspective shift. It's a paradigm shift. This isn't some kind of metaphorical thing that we talk about, just some kind of up there in the cloud pie in the sky idea. But that when you really study what it means to shift the paradigm, it means that the, the way you think, the series of ideas that establish your frame of thinking, your perspective, the way you see life adjusts and alters to see it the way he sees it. See, as your perspective changes, that's you. And as your perspective changes into God's perspective, that's you seeing the world and your life through his eyes. Perspective being how you see it. So all of a sudden when you choose to see it and keep your eyes on Jesus, you get to see your life the way Jesus sees your life. So it's the most efficient, effective, and productive way to approach your life. It is the way that we go. It's the way that we say, and people will say of us, man, that was a guy after God's heart. He did all of God's will. Because all of a sudden, he chose to see life through the prism and through the glasses and the frame of Jesus. So you can keep your eyes locked on Jesus, and Jesus will meet the need of your life. This is why we can, like Judah, go into the battles of our life where we're not capable of overcoming the enemy 
And we could just choose to lock our eyes on Jesus. We could choose to praise God. We could choose to worship God in the midst of our certain defeat, walking into our certain defeat. As we do this, it changes our entire perspective. Everything changes. And like Jesus, we, we start to see Father, and then we do as we see Father do. Isn't that amazing? Like, look at what Jesus' life looked like every day. When he did something, he's saying, I did it because I saw my Father do it. Isn't that amazing? Even down to the disciples he chose. He chose them because God told him and showed him those were the ones to choose. Which look at many, 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 many years later now, we live with the culminating effects and the byproduct of Jesus' decisions that were made with the mirrored and the model of Father's heart and decisions. So it'd be like this, is he chose just the right disciples with just the chemistry of emotions and just the chemistry of gifting mix. And he chose them and he chose them in a way that would ultimately lead to the byproduct of a gospel spread throughout all the world, leading all the way up even till now. Isn't that amazing? Like that's the greatest business plan ever. Like who should I hire? Like Jesus, ultimately it's like, okay, so who do I hire to be my disciple? Who do I recruit to be a part of my program, you know? I want to get those people that will get a lot of people and then we'll get a lot of people, right? Jesus shows this thing. He's going, oh, all right, it's real simple. It's real simple. What we're going to do here is we're going we're to recruit 12 specific people. And those 12 specific people are people that God decided that were he was going to recruit. And it led to it ultimately being one of the greatest business networking plans of all time, right? Isn't that amazing? Like, if you think about that as a network, like, that was the most brilliant network strategy ever, to just do it as God did it. I'm sure there were people more capable and that would have been more accepted by the religious organization of Israel. I'm sure, I mean, basically he chose... the worst people. <laughs> he did. He really did. He chose the, the people with the worst reputations. It's not a great recipe for like humanistic thinking and strategies. Like if I'm starting a church, I'm going to get what? 12 amazing Christians. Love talking about God. You know, they're pure. They say all the scriptures. They're great preachers. They're talented. You know what I mean? Like, right, that's logical. Jesus, if he was just practicing logic, would have went and got, like, the 12 best Pharisees. He'd have been like, you're great, you're great, you're great already, kind of, you're great, you're great. And he would have just went and got him and then started something. But no, it's, it's not how it goes. You don't look to the surface of what man looks like, just look no further than what God said to Samuel as he was trying to choose the next king. He was looking at all the sons of Jesse. He said, they're all there. He's like, surely it's this guy. He's tall, he's strapping, he's handsome. He's great. It's this guy, right? Nope, 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 nope. Don't look at the surface. Don't look at what man sees. Look beyond that. Look to the heart of the man. And all of a sudden, the man wasn't even there that God was anointing. He was out in the fields taking care of the sheep. There's something we must see about Judah, David, Jesus is their lives were a simple lesson of perspective and focus on God. Talent's irrelevant. Position is irrelevant. Opportunity is irrelevant. 
Man's favor is irrelevant to what God wants to do in the earth. The only thing it requires is a person or a couple of people that will fix their eyes on God and do only his will and love his words more than anything else and make their lives about him and make their everything about him. It's not complicated. It's not some kind of series of degrees or certifications or leadership trainings. It's not about any of that stuff. It's this. Do you love God with all of you? With all of you. And there's a reason why Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll love my sheep. Feed my sheep. There's a reason why he said, if you love me, then you'll you'll see the fruit of it. Because you'll love your neighbor. You'll love the enemies. You'll love people. The reality is, is that as we fix our eyes on God, it completely, radically transforms the way we live. Have you ever been in a time of worship where, where you, you felt convicted? How many of you today were just like, ugh? There's a couple of reactions to God pointing out sin in my life and your life that I want to coach you away from. The first reaction we can have at times is that when God points something out, we're immediately motivated to strive to try and change it. I want to coach you away from this. Salvation is not by works. Transformation is not by works and effort. It's by God's grace. So when God points something out to you, if you're a perfectionist and a performer, your first instinct is going to be, got to do something. I got I to read the Bible more. <laughs> I got to pray more. I got to change my, I got to up my fasting. I got to fast twice a month now. <laughs> I, you know what I'm talking about? I, I mean, I've been in church for a long time. And when people hear God wants to do something in their life, they're like, man, I got to up my game. New levels, new devils, baby, come on. (laughs) And it's just a recipe for striving. And we're on this treadmill and we're like, I got it at nine. I got to go to 10? And you're just like, and then you become that YouTube video. (laughs) You ever seen the ones with the cats? Uh, it's, it's tough because that's our pattern if we're performers, right? This is how we know how to do it. So we're going to do it. We're going to do it well. I'm going to fast more than anybody else. And I haven't eaten for like 60 days kind of a vibe, right? Like, so the, the second thing I see a lot of times is when, some, when God shows up and somebody becomes aware of their sinfulness or their sinful nature, is they, they hide in guilt and condemnation. They're so ashamed. This is the Adam and Eve trick. Ah, I'm exposed. I gotta hide. When you become aware of your sinfulness or how short you fall, if you can't also become aware of how much God loves you at the same time, you're gonna hide. Because it's one part of the revelation of God that you really should have. The one is he's holy. Which is definitely as scary as it sounds. It is. Without the the sacrifice of Jesus, we're not qualified to get into his holy presence. And our sin would become a source of us dying and it's not good. The reality is is that God is definitely 
for sure, in a really, really intimidating way, perfect and holy. He's way better than that person you spend time with that intimidates you because they're great. You ever spend time with that person? You're just like, I hate spending time with that person. Right? Like, you, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, they're just so talented. They're funny. They're good looking. They're everything. You know what? Why don't you just kick rocks? Go away. It's, it's way worse than that. <laughs> it's way worse than that. That God in his true nature, when you actually see him, is perfect, is holy, is astonishingly amazing. And if you can't also encounter the perfect love of God in that moment, then you believe that you are disqualified by the nature of God. But it's the loving grace of God that qualifies us for transformation in the presence of his holiness. This is why we're living sacrifices, holy and blameless, holy and blameless. That's a status of transformation, not a status of qualification. Because none of you and I are not, none of us inherently are holy and blameless. That is a status, like Facebook, where your status is married. Holy and blameless is a status that we get and that we inherit in relationship with God. So this is the journey of what it looks like to actually have a life of worship. It's just so fixed on God. You just don't take your eyes off of me. When you do, just, oh, I, I, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. I love you. Thank you for forgiving me. And in a moment, like God doesn't put you in timeout. Do you know that? Like when you step off the path, just look at the prodigal son. He's not like, all right, man, thanks for coming back. But what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and put you right over there with the servants. And you're going to be less than all of us until you pay off your dues. It's our disciplined mindset of how we raise kids that makes us believe that God puts us in timeout and shuns us until we change, until we know what we did wrong. Like, that's not how God deals in transformation. He doesn't transform you and I through fear, condemnation, guilt. He doesn't do it by separating you and him. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Guilt and shame give yourself permission to not accept God's presence and love and gifts. But when truly you're responding in repentance to be reconciled to God, it's all about closing the distance. It's all about you knowing you have permission to enter into proximity with God. And in entering into proximity with God, you accept Jesus' gift of grace for your life to be in the presence of transforming holiness. 